Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. You might have noticed that we announced our season three a bit prematurely. We had two episodes. I was very excited, and then we just up and disappeared for a couple months. I will explain why shortly. We've also got 15 pages of criminal justice fuckery to go through. But before I get into all of that, I'm readjusting the order ever so slightly. If you have not already done so, please join the conversation online. Follow us on Twitter at Fiskamall. That's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a comment on the website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial supporters, you can do that on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. I'm putting that at the top of the podcast because amid assorted podcast notes that we're going to go over, uh, I got suspended on Twitter twice in the span of two weeks, two Friday nights in a row. So we had to go to the Fiscamall account to continue discussing things. So I want to make sure I put it in the front to make sure that you're following the Fiscamall Twitter account if you are not already. All right, let's briefly talk about where I have disappeared to uh, because there has been a crazy string of stuff that all started back at the source being my air conditioning in my apartment. So my AC died back on July 3rd, which you recall was a Wednesday. And I came back from work and it was 83, 84 degrees in the apartment at the time. To the apartment complex's credit, they sent a guy out on Independence Day who put some more coolant in the unit, thought that would fix the problem. It did not fix the problem. I came back from a cookout and it was 85 in the apartment. Called them again, sent a guy out the next day. And he said, hey, one of the wires is arcing, and we think that might be the problem. So I went to work, came back. It was 87. Now, I normally keep it 78 in the summertime, which is balmy in itself. But that nine-degree difference (laughs) makes a fucking difference. Let me put it that way. Uh, So they sent a guy out on Saturday. And he's like, look, I'm the backup to the backup to the backup. I don't know diddly about air conditioning units. Uh, So they gave me a wall unit and a box fan, and then I had a box fan of my own. So we were able to get the apartment cool, but my place sounded like an airport for most of July. They finally got it fixed two weeks later. They replaced the wall unit, and uh, that was able. So like, if you set the thermostat at 78, it will just skyrocket up to the 80s. But if you keep it at 77, somehow it manages to stay at 77. I don't understand it. Don't fully understand air conditioning units in general. But that happened. And then like a day or two later, we got notice that my apartment complex was being sold to another company, which was the third company in three years that it had been sold to. And the changeover was supposed to happen on July 31st. And when it did, they apparently forgot to pay the power bill. So for the first four days of August... Uh, There was no lights anywhere in my entire complex. So I'm on a third floor apartment with no hallway lighting, no stairway lighting, no neighborhood lighting. You know, I have my phone, thankfully, to light my path as I'm walking the dog at night. But if you decide you wanted to rob me, you probably could have done it successfully back then. So anyhow, whole purpose of that is to say girlfriend and I decided that we were going to look for a house because she is having issues with her own neighbors. The guy beside her is a musician, so he's playing music at 11, 12 o'clock at night. The guy below her smokes weed, so that comes up through the ventilation, and her whole uh, her whole apartment smells like a dispensary. So we decided to go look for a house. We end up setting a search perimeter so that you know it's roughly halfway between where she works and where I work. We're checking seven, eight houses a day, two to three days a week. We find one that we make an offer on but can't reach an agreement with the homeowners. Finally find one we like, make an offer, and it's accepted, which of course triggers the due diligence period. Had to go through the inspection, which was a disaster. Got It's a nice house and got the house for fairly cheap because of the fact the inspection was so bad. Uh, but then, of course, once we got it, we closed. We had to get started on all of the work. Uh, so we had bring out some folks to work on the foundation. That was supposed to take two days. Ended up taking nine days. Once that was done, we had 
had a guy to come in to repaint because a lot of the drywall and stuff cracked as part of the foundation work. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's still slated to happen. So hopefully she will be moved in, God willing, by the end of next month. And then I will move in sometime soon after that. I'm already starting packing up the apartment now, but we'll see how that goes. So that is the key piece of life that has kept me away. Uh, And then in addition to that, there were several things relating to my job that happened to just coincide all at the same time. So like when you do litigation stuff, you try and spread out the key points of litigation. You don't want to have too many cases going to trial at the same time. You don't want to have too many cases in discovery at the same time because you just end up spending a lot of time and energy uh, on stuff and you can only do so many things in a day. So one of my cases that I can't tell you about because it ended up settling, but the gist of it is uh, it was a big case. It's probably the top five biggest in my entire career. And we had a 20 hour mediation So there was like 15 hours in the room. We started at nine. We didn't finish until after midnight. And then I had to drive two and a half hours there before we started at nine and then had to drive two and a half hours back because I had to be in court the next day. Uh, So it was it was miserable. Like it turned out well. Client was happy. You know, I'm I'm not complaining, but I, I was on the verge of literal tears as it hit like 12, 10 in the morning, I'm thinking about the two and a half hour drive I have to make back to Durham. And we were haggling over release language. And I just wanted to like, you know, I, I've never been homicidal, but I was borderline at that point. Uh, but that turned out well. A few days later, had a motion to dismiss in a case where the other side was seeking seven figures from my client. They had filed a motion to compel because I was refusing to provide certain discovery Then they filed a motion for sanctions while my motion to dismiss was pending. And we had the motion to dismiss hearing and the judge basically agreed with me because I was right all along. Um, But that case got dismissed. So all that happened in like a a week and a half time span. Plus we had a trial about the case in Garner that I've told you all about. A whole bunch of shit going on at the job. In addition, the thread knot is still going on. Today, Sunday, uh, we're recording this on the 29th, is day 116 of this shit almost four months. Uh, We had a day 100 roundtable on the Violet Wanderers podcast. I'll link that to you in the show notes. It was a lot of fun. Uh, And the the weebs got my account suspended twice for hateful conduct. Uh, One of them, so the plaintiff's lawyer who I've been making fun of for most of these past four months, uh, missed his deadline to file some things. And they ended up getting me suspended that particular night. So I couldn't make fun of the fact that he filed it late. Uh, I said one of the accounts, I called him, quote, the guy, and he went in, changed his pronouns in his bio, and then reported me for misgendering. It was originally he, him, changed it to she, her, and then I got reported. So that was an initial ban. That took 48 hours before I was allowed to be back. And then the Friday night after that, I got banned for an entire week because during the 48-hour ban... Uh, one of the people sent me a direct message with just a bunch of profanity and other shit. And rather than engage, I sent back a picture that's a dancing gumball and holding a sign and the sign says, die mad. And that was hateful conduct as well. So that was a seven day suspension that became a nine day suspension because Twitter's algorithm sucks ass. And the two days I was suspended while they were waiting to consider my appeal ended up getting tacked on to the end of the suspension period. So I was tweeting that entire time from the Fiskamall Twitter account. Uh, we actually did some fundraisers during that time span. Um, so back in July, someone joked that I should just apply to take the Texas bar uh, or wave in rather because I was unfit to comment on the law without having a Texas law license. So we did a GoFundMe for that and I applied to join the Texas bar and that is still pending. Uh, we had five separate charity fundraisers uh, just in a two-month time span, so July, August, September, we raised $3,134.70 for Seek Healing, which is a nonprofit in Asheville, helps people overcome drug addiction. We helped out crayons to calculators with a school supply drive. It's the third time we did that, and we had 30 boxes of supplies plus monetary donations on the side that I don't track in my spreadsheet like I probably should. But to give you some perspective, we had two boxes of supplies in 2016. We didn't have any in 2017 because I was dealing with, you know, just the trying to stop the law firm from going 
under, basically. Uh, did it in 2018 where we had nine boxes, and then this year we had 30. So more than triple what we had done last year. Uh, we raised $1,027 for RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, helping victims. Uh, both of those were the result of fundraisers where we were getting transcripts of these hearings in Texas, which were just so comedically bad. Like every bad thing I had said about the lawyer in Texas and the lawyer in Minnesota and their sexual predator of a client, apparently I was underselling it because it was actually worse. So if you have not seen the transcript of the anti-slap hearing, holy shit, please go download it because it is, it's comical. It is comical. Um, so we did that, and the leftover money that we didn't spend on the transcripts, we donated to Rain. And then we did the uh, Salvation Army Boys and Girls Club. Every year they have their Crosland Gala that we raise money for. And this year we raised $5,832.84, which was a few grand more than we raised last year. And we raised that much money all from the Fiscamall Twitter account. So if you're keeping track, that means we've raised over $10,000 for charity in just two months, plus 30 boxes of school supplies. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, so life continues to be insane. I've got a pack. I've got more stuff going on. I've got a, a CLE that I'm teaching this coming Friday and a bunch of other shit. Don't know for sure what the production plan is going to be because I'm not going to have a space to produce in my apartment, and I only get access to the studio typically the last week of every month. Uh, but good news is the new house, I have gotten the girlfriend to commit that I can have an office out of one of the bedrooms, and I'm going to turn that into a production studio myself. So hopefully we will be fine permanently going forward. Um, but I'm going to do my best to continue recording at my dining room table until uh, the move actually happens. So that is it for the podcast notes. Just know that more is coming. If there's stuff that you want me to cover, let me know. I've not been as good on uh, answering the what the fist questions. I've got a backlog on that that I will get to, I promise you. Uh, but just let me know. In politics news, we're not going to cover politics. Just know that the papaya potus Donald Trump is a traitor, has been abusing his office for God knows how long. And I'm thankful the Democrats are finally opening an impeachment inquiry, even though I suspect they're going to puss out and not do anything with it because they're concerned about the polls. My personal hope is that they drag this out, make it nice and long, have lots of televised hearings where we're going over every tidbit of everything the president has done to fuck up over the past three years. Uh, but we'll see. Let's get into the criminal justice fuckery. We're going to start with court news, as we always do, out of the Fifth Circuit. This is somewhat good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. But, of course, it deals with qualified immunity, which means it's only partially good news. Uh, Dallas Area Rapid Transit, they go by DART. One of their officers arrested a photographer and requested qualified immunity after the photographer sued, saying, hey, wait a minute, you can't arrest me. I have a First Amendment right to record you. And the Fifth Circuit denied the request for qualified immunity. That is the good news. The bad news is it is an unpublished opinion, which means it cannot be used for precedent, which kind of sucks. But I'm going to read you some excerpts from it anyway. The Fifth Circuit says, quote, Officer Branch began working for Dallas Area Rapid Transit, the local transportation entity providing bus and rail services, as a police officer in 2006. Appley Avi Adelman is a freelance journalist who publishes a neighborhood blog and provides photographs to media outlets. In June of 2007, DART issued a directive prohibiting non-DART personnel from using DART facilities or property for unauthorized non-transportation purposes. Then, in June of 2014, DART issued a new policy, what they call the photography policy, allowing people to take photographs on DART property so long as they did not interfere with transportation or public safety activity. Now, I'm going to note... That is pretty standard anyway. So in circuits where you have a First Amendment protected right to record the police, one of the criteria for doing that is that you can't interfere with police activity. So the court goes on to note that there was a uh, call over the radio for assisting a K2 overdose victim. Adelman went to the facility to try and take pictures and then the officer tried to stop him from doing so. The court continues, quote, Officer Branch told Adelman multiple times that he could not take photographs. Branch first told Adelman he was prohibited from photographing the medical scene. Later, she instructed Adelman that he could, subquote, take pictures from the street, but could not take pictures here on dark property. 
In all, Branch asked Edelman to leave the plaza nine times and asked for his identification four times. Edelman repeatedly refused. Less than five minutes after first approaching him and demanding that he stop taking photographs, Branch informed Edelman that she was detaining him. Branch then arrested Edelman for criminal trespass under Texas Penal Code Section 30.05 based on her assertion that the plaza was, subquote, not public property and her belief that Edelman was not allowed to photograph the scene. Branch also issued Edelman a criminal trespass warning, which banned him from the plaza and certain other DART transit locations. Now, the interesting part with this particular case is that her other officer who was responding, plus two of the medics, they had on body cams, which recorded a conversation between the officer and the medics, basically saying, why is she giving this guy a hard time? He has a legal right to be here and take photographs, etc., etc., Uh, And in addition, she later lied about what took place. She claimed that they told her to go arrest this guy when the body cam video and audio proved that that did not happen. Uh, The Fifth Circuit continues, quote, Officer Branch did not have authority to order Adelman to depart. Adelman was taking photos in accordance with DART's photography policy, which permits people to take photographs on DART property as long as they do not interfere with transportation or public safety activity in doing so. The DART investigation determined that Branch's claims that Adelman was within a few feet of DFR paramedics and that DFR instructed her to keep Adelman back were false. Indeed, the exchange between Officer Cannon and two DFR paramedics during the confrontation shows that even Branch's colleagues knew Branch was acting outside of her authority when she told Adelman to leave. Thus, no reasonable officer would conclude that she has probable cause to arrest someone for criminal trespass after that person refuses to follow her instructions to leave when she lacks the authority to exclude the person from the property. Accordingly, Branch's assumption of probable cause was objectively unreasonable. Taking the facts in the light most favorable to Adelman, no reasonable officer under these circumstances would conclude that she had authority to eject a person complying with DART policies from public property and then arrest that person for criminal trespass when he failed to depart. Of course, there's more in the opinion. We'll give you a link in the show notes. It's all fairly well-reasoned, all makes sense, but because it is a per curiam, unpublished opinion, it's not going to be useful for precedent in other cases, which sucks. It's always rare that we get denials of qualified immunity. It would be nice if some of them could serve as precedent for future denials down the road. Don't have any research or federal news that's particularly noteworthy, so we will dive right into the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, and we start in California, in Corona, where a killer cop is going to escape without any punishment despite killing a guy who was unarmed and injuring both of the guy's parents. From that story, it says, quote, Riverside County prosecutors on Wednesday announced they would not file criminal charges against an off-duty Los Angeles police officer who fatally shot an intellectually disabled man in June during a confrontation in a Costco store in Corona. District Attorney Mike Hestron said prosecutors presented the case September 9th to a Riverside grand jury of 19 people. Ultimately, the grand jury decided no charges were warranted against the off-duty officer, Salvador Sanchez, and the fatal shooting of Kenneth French. French was killed in the fast food tasting line on June 14th. His parents, Russell and Paola French, were also wounded in the gunfire. The decision against prosecution capped a three-month investigation into a case that sparked debate about the use of deadly force by law enforcement and prompted worry among families of developmentally disabled children. Civil rights attorney Dale K. Gallippo, who is representing the French family, acknowledged that French pushed the officer, but said the exchange wasn't a justification for the shooting. Now, thing to note, even though we didn't have an episode on it, this was going around on Twitter, French is schizophrenic. He was unarmed, but he's 32 and was schizophrenic, escorted to the Costco by his parents who were in their 60s. And the initial story was that French came up, hit the officer on the back of the head, knocked him unconscious, and when the officer woke up, he was, quote, fighting for his life. That was the argument that the police department put out at the time. Uh, Turns out that was bullshit. Story continues, quote, Before shots were fired, there's a gap in time when the officer declared he was a police officer and French's father steps between the two men. The district attorney's analysis determines there were, or determined rather, there were 3.8 seconds elapsed between when Sanchez was knocked to the ground and when the first of a total of 10 shots were fired. The gunfire cannot be seen in the security camera video from the Costco. Video revealed that French was being pushed away by his father and was 20 feet from the officer when Sanchez opened fire. Four shots missed, flying into the store. 
French and his parents were all shot in the back. Uh, Mrs. French went into a coma. His dad lost a kidney, and French himself, of course, died. Uh, so nothing's going to happen. There's not going to be any kind of criminal punishment at all, even though this particular guy was unarmed and 20 feet away, going away from the officer, when the officer decided to go guns blazing and kill a guy and then inflict serious injuries on both of his parents who hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, so that's in Corona. In San Diego, we've got a new lawsuit where taxpayers are going to be on the hook because the police don't like the fact that they're being videotaped. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, an Uber driver has filed a federal lawsuit claiming San Diego police illegally arrested and jailed him last November in retaliation for using his phone to videotape their activity. Rashid Adan claims police violated his free speech rights by arresting him so that he'd stop recording and that they violated his right against unlawful searches because he was arrested and his car was impounded without probable cause. In court documents, attorneys for the city say the officer who made the arrest, Jason Langley, acted in good faith and with a reasonable belief that his conduct was lawful and necessary. Spoiler alert, it was not. And they're going to be very upset when they get to the case that I'm going to mention to you here in a minute. Uh, during the November 4th incident that spurred the lawsuit, Adon claims Langley told him he was illegally parked while waiting for his next Uber fare in an unspecified part of downtown about 2.30 in the morning. When Adon offered to move his car, Langley said he was going to ticket him anyway, according to the suit, which was filed last month. Adon responded that he was going to use his smartphone to record the incident, which prompted Langley to say that such behavior would result in Adon's arrest and impounding of his car. When Adon began taping, Langley called a tow truck, arrested Adon, placed him in a police cruiser, had his car impounded, and eventually brought Adon to jail and had him booked. The actions by Langley violated Don's First Amendment free speech rights and Fourth Amendment rights against illegal search and seizure, the suit alleges. And I'm going to note, he's absolutely correct. So the ability to record police and the performance of their duties was recognized in the Ninth Circuit, which includes California, in 1995. More than 20 years ago, the case is Fordyce versus the city of Seattle. So I've mentioned in one of the suits that I am involved in that all of the odd-numbered circuit courts of appeals have found a First Amendment right to record police in the performance of their duties. So 1st, 3rd, 5th, 7th, 9th, 11th, all of them have ruled that you have that right. Ninth Circuit was the first to do this back in 1995. So California taxpayers are going to be on the hook for a boatload of money because this particular officer arrested a guy and impounded his car just because of the fact he was being recorded on the guy's phone. So that's what we got in California and Florida. We got a lot of stuff in Florida. We got one, two, three, four. Four stories, one of which has an audio clip that's just spicy, absolutely spicy. Uh, but we'll start in Miami, where a corrections officer raped a woman who was on house arrest. From that story, it says, quote, A Miami-Dade corrections officer raped a woman who was on house arrest, threatening to send her back to jail unless she had sex with him, authorities said Friday. Officer Julian Gonzalez was arrested and charged with four counts, each of armed kidnapping and armed sexual battery. Gonzalez is an 11-year veteran of the Miami-Dade Corrections and Rehabilitation Department. He was assigned to the Monitored Release Program, which is based at a corrections building in Overtown that used to house female inmates. The officer was assigned in August to check on and supervise the 43-year-old woman who was awaiting trial at home on a criminal charge, according to the arrest warrant. She later told police that he began expressing his romantic interest in her via text message, even though she insisted she did not like men. She told police that Gonzalez had been forcing her to engage in sex during his mandatory visitations to her home. On four separate occasions, he took her to the next motel in North Miami-Dade, according to an arrest warrant. Subquote, you know what you have to do, he told her, before making her perform oral sex on him, according to the warrant. He also told her, subquote, I can make you disappear, the warrant said. Surveillance footage and a GPS system on Gonzalez's department-issued car confirmed he took her to the motel. That's a, that's a sign. You are a dumb motherfucker. And I, I know we talk about first rule of fisk type stuff all the time. It's bad enough you're going to rape somebody, but you're really, really fucking stupid to do it via your own car that you got to know is being monitored. Like, this is a public vehicle. Of course there's a GPS unit on it. How fucking stupid are you? 
so there's a story or a uh, statement rather from the department that says, subquote, MDCR takes allegations of employee misconduct seriously, and this arrest should send a strong message that employees involved in these types of crimes will not be tolerated and will be pursued to the fullest extent of the law. I will note that didn't happen until after he already raped her multiple times, took her to the hotel at least four times. Then they finally got off their ass to do something about it. So that's in Miami, in Orlando. Now, this shit is wild. So an Orlando school resource officer, which I will note, is a cop. We call them SROs to make them sound better. They are just plain-ass police who are assigned to schools. Arrested a six-year-old. It was a six-year-old black girl. Of course, that prompted a Twitter firestorm. But then he then arrested a six-year-old black boy. And everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? And then we discover he has a history of child abuse himself. So from that story, because it's just fucking crazy, it says, quote, a Florida police officer has been fired after he arrested two six-year-old students at their school on suspicion of misdemeanor battery charges, prompting outcry and an internal investigation. Orlando Police Chief Orlando Rolone said Monday that the incident made him, subquote, sick to his stomach, especially when he found out the children, students at Lucius and Emma Nixon Academy, had been put in the back of a squad car. Subquote, when I first learned about this, we were all appalled and we could not fathom the idea of a six-year-old being put in the back of a police car. It's still shocking to us to have something like this happen was completely and totally a surprise to all of us. I don't believe that for a minute. That's, that's my own personal aside. To have a school resource officer in an elementary school, the idea that they're not going to arrest kids at some point is just fucking silly because that's the whole reason why they're there. This notion that they're there to stop school shootings and this other shit just doesn't mesh with the statistics and the facts because the school shootings are comparatively rare. And when they do happen, the SROs can't do shit about it. So I don't believe that. But let's take the guy's word. We're going to continue with the story. It says, quote, Officer Dennis Turner had been working as a school resource officer at the charter school when he arrested the first graders during separate incidents, handcuffing them with zip ties and taking them to the station to be booked. Department officials immediately suspended Turner and launched an investigation. Chief Rallone explained that there is a policy that strictly prohibits officers from arresting children under the age of 12 unless they receive approval from a manager. The police previously said that one of the children was eight years old, but on Monday, the chief corrected that mistake and said they are both six. Now, I'm going to note this this mistake of, oh, he's eight. Think about how that plays out as far as media perception. They're both first graders, but if you're a six-year-old in first grade, you're just a normal first grader. If you're an eight-year-old in first grade, that means you're obviously not a good student because you've been held back already. So that mistake, I'm putting mistake in air quotes there. Story continues. During the press conference, Rallone alluded to Turner's past disciplinary issues. Now, this is where holy shit is all I can say, because uh, we got multiple different things here. It's not just one thing. Quote, according to an Orlando Sentinel article from 1998, the officer was charged with aggravated child abuse after officials found welts and bruises on his seven-year-old son. Uh, Apopka police said Turner abused the boy after he brought home a bad report from school. In an interview with the paper at the time, Turner defended his actions. Subquote, don't let this stop you from disciplining your children, he said. Before that, Turner was the subject of two other internal investigations. In 2003, officials with the Seminole County Sheriff's Office said it was going to ask a state attorney to review the Orlando police officer after he threatened the husband of the woman Turner had been dating and, subquote, thumped him on the chest. In 2016, the Orlando Citizens Police Review Board voted to uphold the findings of an internal investigation involving Turner, which concluded that the officer used excessive force during an arrest. That same year, the Sentinel reported that Turner tased a man five times even after he was on the floor and had stopped resisting. So by my count, that's one, two, three, four separate times where this guy should under no circumstances be a cop at all, but damn sure should not be a school resource officer. You should not have someone who's going to tase a man five times when he's not resisting, who's going to use excessive force, who's going to go after the husband of a woman he's fucking on the side, who's going to abuse his own kid. Let me emphasize that. Who's going to abuse his own kid should not be a school resource officer. So that is fun times in Orlando out of, I don't know if it's Tamarack or Tamarack or however the fuck you pronounce it. 
Uh, I'm going to call it tamarack. I apologize to people in Florida if I've got that wrong. And this is just, when I say this is spicy, this is some spiciness right here. A tamarack commissioner confronted a Broward Sheriff's Office deputy who was being recognized during, <laughs> it's, I shouldn't laugh, but God damn, it's funny, uh, who was being recognized during an award ceremony at a city commission meeting. The incident happened at the beginning of a meeting of the Tamarack City Commission around 9 a.m. on Wednesday. Uh, Broward Sheriff's Office Deputy Joshua Gallardo was receiving a Deputy of the Month commendation at the meeting. A recognition ceremony is customary at most city commission meetings. After Gallardo was presented with the award, Commissioner Mike Gellin took the microphone and confronted Gallardo about his previous interaction with the deputy. And rather than read you the quote, because it just doesn't fully convey the spiciness, I've got an audio clip that I'm going to play for you so you can hear it for yourself, because goddamn. Uh, Joshua Gallardo. My, my line. Can you come down for a second? It's good to see you again. You probably don't remember me, but you're the police officer who falsely arrested me four years ago. You lied on the police report. I believe you're a rogue police officer, you're a bad police officer, and you don't deserve to be here. Ouch. That's all I can say, just ouch. I, you know, it cracks me up because you listen back to it. You can hear the guy, someone else on the commission going, that's, that's my line. I, like, I think he knew some shit was about to pop off, but it's, it's just hilarious. And it's on video. So that's where we pulled the audio from. There's actual video of this taking place. Reasonable minds can differ as to whether or not that was an appropriate time and place to do it at a recognition ceremony where this guy is being given a officer of the month award. I personally don't really give a shit because if you're willing to lie about that sort of thing, I don't think you should get awards. I think you should be fired. But either way, uh, kudos to this particular commissioner for being willing to address the situation publicly. Uh, so that's in Tamarack, Tamarack, whatever. Uh, in Tarpon Springs, there's some crazy names for cities in Florida. Uh, Tarpon Springs, we have a... <laughs> God, this is funny. This is legitimately funny. Uh, an officer has resigned because he threatened a mass shooting if he didn't get an assignment that he wanted. And there's a dispute as to whether or not it's a joke or not. From that story, it says, quote, Detective Steve Bergeron was talking to a fellow Tarpon Springs detective about how much he coveted an assignment last month when he made this comment that there would be a subquote active shooter situation at the police department headquarters if he didn't get the position. Uh, subquote, the detective said it was something that made the hairs on the back of his neck stand up, said Tarpon Springs Police Major Jeffrey Young, describing the person who reported the complaint. Bergeron wrote to the police chief to say he was just joking, but he resigned Thursday before the police chief could fire him for breaking city rules. Uh, Young said law enforcement cannot ask the public to watch out for red flags, signs of potentially dangerous behavior, and ignore such a sign under its own roof. Bergeron resigned before his scheduled meeting with investigators. In his letter to the chief, he apologized for his behavior, writing that he considers the department, subquote, an extension of my own family. During the course of this conversation, I made a statement in jest referencing an active shooter. I never imagined when the statement was made that it would be perceived as a potential threat to our shared workplace. Uh, the name of the detective who heard the comment was not released by the department, but he told internal investigators that Bergren didn't act like he was joking. Subquote, the other detective said Bergren made the statement in a stoic manner and not giving any indication that this was a joke. Bergen was placed on paid leave the next day, and his agency-issued firearm, badge, and identification were all taken from him, pending the outcome of an internal investigation. Now, I, I don't really know what kind of comment to offer on this. I don't know that I have to comment at all. But this just seems so ridiculous to me because I don't know which side to believe. Like, on the one hand, I don't doubt for a minute that this guy was joking. I don't doubt that he was joking in a stoic manner because I know people that have that type of deadpan delivery to their jokes. But at the same time, we've got so many stories of stupid fucking police doing stupid fucking things that I can't discount the fact he actually did threaten an active shooter situation if he didn't get the job. So I don't know. It's just a lot of crazy shit going on in Florida. That's all I know right now. So let's go over to Georgia because Georgia's got some crazy shit going on there, too. So in Forsyth County, Georgia, we got another kitty diddler on the force who has been fired. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a Georgia State Patrol trooper was fired after being arrested on child molestation charges in Forsyth County. Brian Sanchez, 24, was arrested Monday by the GBI, that's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, on charges of aggravated child molestation, child molestation and sexual battery. 
The Georgia Department of Public Safety said he was fired as a result of the charges. The Forsyth County Sheriff's Office requested the GBI to investigate Sanchez on September 4th after allegations emerged in Cummings, Georgia. Sanchez, who had worked with the GSP since November 2017, turned himself in at the Forsyth County Jail. The DPS said in a news release that the allegations against Sanchez violate the department's code, which says no member will engage in any behavior which results in incarceration or probation. No other information has been released. Now, notice that no other information has been released. If you or I were charged with aggravated child molestation, child molestation, and sexual battery, a whole bunch of information would be released and would be spread out all over the news because that's typically how these prosecutions tend to work. But when you have a badge, you get some special protections. Uh, In Gwinnett County, this story is crazy. I don't understand what the fuck is going on here. So if any of y'all, I know we got listeners in Gwinnett. I get stories from them periodically. If y'all can explain to me what is going on, because this is just surreal. So a superior court judge has been indicted because she thought the district attorney was spying on her hired a forensics company to check the computer for spyware. The forensics company hired a convicted child molester, which gave him access to the computer, which led to, uh, he's not supposed to have access to the computer. So everyone got indicted on computer trespass charges. That shit is wild. Uh, So from the story, it says, quote, a Gwinnett County jury has indicted Superior Court Judge Catherine Schrader and three men, including a private investigator and the founder of DragonCon, on three counts of computer trespass. Schrader had reportedly believed that District Attorney Danny Porter had hacked her county computer, and she hired investigator T.J. Ward to look into it. Ward, in turn, brought in Ed Kramer, the DragonCon co-founder who pleaded guilty to three child molestation charges in 2013, uh, to look into whether computer tampering had happened. That reportedly gave Ward and Kramer access to the county's computer network. Schrader, Ward, Kramer, and Frank Carrick, who was another person in the company, were all indicted. The indictment states that the four of them, subquote, did knowingly use a computer network without authority and with the intent to remove network traffic data from the computer network of Gwinnett County, contrary to the laws of said state. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation has been handling the investigation into the access of the computer network and turned the case over to the Prosecuting Attorney's Council of Georgia, which is handling prosecution of the case. That's it for the story. But just ponder for a minute how crazy it is that a judge would think the district attorney was spying on them. Like, I I gotta imagine that wasn't just something decided willy-nilly. I mean, I'd assume a judge would have a good faith basis to believe that. But that's just, there's layers to the onion here, and I don't fully understand what all's going on, because this Gwinnett County, Georgia, is a special place. You might remember, that's the county where the sheriff used the forfeiture money to buy the sports car that they then had to give back after it became a media firestorm. They've had a bunch of people die in the jail. Like, Gwinnett County, Georgia is just a special place. I'll leave it at that. But that story is crazy. Uh, in Henry County, they've killed a guy because three different officers tased him at the exact same time all at once. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a family is devastated after at least three police officers used tasers on their son at the same time. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation is now investigating 24-year-old Fernando Rodriguez's death. Officials with the Hampton Police Department said they got a call Friday about a naked man walking down Oak Street near a music festival. Now, I'm going to note, he's naked. It means he's not hiding any weapons, and he wasn't reported as being armed, so he didn't have anything in his hands. The story continues, quote, Officers said when they approached the man, later identified as Rodriguez, he would not cooperate with their demands. Henry County Police Department officers were also called in for backup. Officials said that moments later, Rodriguez became combative. Now note, combative, but not armed. Uh, GBI said at least three officers deployed their tasers on the man. He later died at Piedmont Henry Hospital. Subquote, officers ended up tasing him. We had multiple officers who tased him. He did go into medical distress. They attempted to respond to that. He was taken to the hospital, and later he died as a result of that incident, a police spokesperson said. A witness who recorded the intense encounter told Channel 2's Taisha Fernandez that she heard a lot of commotion outside of her home Friday night. There's somebody screaming, and then there's a lot of police officers. I think it's just, once again, police taking their title and abusing it. So we'll give you a link to that story. But, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever been tased. It's not a pleasant experience. 
and it's considered a deadly weapon. A taser is a deadly weapon. So, you know, just like shooting somebody, you can kill them pretty easily with a taser. The thought of being tased repeatedly is unpleasant, but the thought of being tased multiple times at the same time, you know, of course you're going to fucking die. Like, that's a given. Why the fuck would you have three separate people tasing a naked guy who's unarmed all at once? It's just so fucking stupid. Um, so anyhow, that's Georgia. I'm, I apologize for my disgust. It's just idiotic. It's so damn stupid. Uh, in Idaho, we don't hear about Idaho often, but in Boise, uh, police have been lying about Miranda rights. And as a result, three guys who had confessed to rape are now going to instead be released after they've pled guilty to battery because their confessions were suppressed. From that story, it says, quote, three Boise residents who were accused of raping an 18-year-old in Kuna pleaded guilty to misdemeanor counts of battery and false imprisonment Friday and will not serve additional jail time. Uh, the three were initially charged with felony rape in February. However, and I love how the media, you know, soft pedals this, because of problems with how their Miranda rights were administered by investigating Ada County Sheriff's deputies, in-custody interviews with the suspects were suppressed, making the case for felony rape difficult to prove, Ada County Prosecutor Tanner Stillman said. Uh, so, quote, because of these missteps, the defense was successful in suppressing evidence. Without that evidence, my hands are somewhat tied, Stillman said. Uh, Ada County Sheriff's Office spokesman Patrick Orr said in a statement Friday that, subquote, one of our deputies made an error while telling two of the four suspects their Miranda rights in February when he told them they had a right to an attorney in court instead of just saying they had a right to an attorney. It was an honest mistake that had a horrible consequence. Now, there's some stuff here that doesn't quite jive with this very delicate explanation for what happened. Uh, first, if only two of the people were falsely Mirandized that way, told they could only have a lawyer in court as opposed to pretrial interrogation, then you wouldn't have the third one getting a misdemeanor battery charge because he still would have a valid confession. Uh, that part doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But then in addition... Uh, the concept of a Miranda right or a Miranda waiver comes from Miranda versus Arizona, which was a Supreme Court case about your fucking right under the Fifth Amendment to have a lawyer prior to trial. You have the right to have a lawyer during interrogation while you're in custody because that's part of protecting your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. That's what Miranda was about. It was decided 53 years ago. There is no conceivable thing as an honest mistake like that anymore. A decision that was made two decades before I was fucking born that is part of standard police training, part of standard law school training. They created a goddamn movie about it, for Christ's sake. Like, he's either deliberately doing this, or he's incompetent, or the training regiment at the Ada County Sheriff's Office is deficient. Those are the only three options here. And I'm inclined to believe that it's this type of deliberate horseshit that they're trying to get a confession. They decide to play a little fast and loose and lie to people because they say they can do that. So just know if you're in Idaho and Boise, you know, either these kids are innocent and got railroaded, in which case fuck the police, or they actually did it, in which case still fuck the police because it means they're getting off light because of the police error. So that's in Idaho. In Kansas, <laughs> in Douglas County, we got a case of prosecutors gone wild where one of the DAs has intentionally withheld evidence that shows multiple innocent people are in jail. And they decided to let them sit there, in some cases, for years. So from that story, it says, quote, Three dozen protesters recently demanded that Douglas County Senior Assistant Prosecutor Amy McGowan be fired or step down. While McGowan and her boss, Douglas County District Attorney Charles Branson, shrugged off the demands, the protesters raised an important question. After playing a key role in sending innocent defendants to prison, why has McGowan never been disciplined or even investigated? Twice, judges in Missouri have ruled that she withheld evidence that may have prevented innocent men from going to jail for crimes they did not commit. Recently, a circuit court judge in DeKalb County, Missouri, found clear and convincing evidence that Ricky Kidd was wrongfully convicted of a 1996 double murder in Kansas City. Days later, Kidd was released. He will not be retried, the prosecutor said. The judge found that McGowan failed to disclose exculpatory evidence that was material to the outcome of Kidd's case. That information included depositions from the actual killers that could have been used in Kidd's defense. Holy shit! You've got depositions from the people who actually did it, and the guy they prosecuted for it never got access to them. What the fuck? 
Story continues, quote, in 2006, a different Jackson County Circuit Court judge vacated the conviction of Richard Bookley II, a Kansas City attorney who was accused of killing his law partner. The judge found that prosecutors led by McGowan purposely withheld evidence that would have cleared Bookley of wrongdoing. He spent five and a half years in prison and lost his law license before he was fully exonerated in 2012. An appeals court threw out Bookley's 2002 murder conviction because prosecutors failed to disclose a building surveillance videotape that would have exonerated him. McGowan admitted in a court hearing that determining when Bookley left the building was significant to the state's case. He was released from prison in 2008 and regained his law license in 2013. In 2013, the Kansas Supreme Court found McGowan made improper comments during closing arguments in five separate cases between 2007 and 2009. In one instance, the court vacated a sentence in a child exploitation case. So let me go back here. So we've got the five cases between 2007 and 2009 and the innocent lawyer in 2002 and the innocent guy back in, I don't know when he was initially convicted. I guess it would have been around 1996, but it was vacated in 2006. By my count, that's at least seven pretty egregious fuck-ups by this particular prosecutor. Uh, story continues, quote, Prosecutors are virtually immune from criminal prosecution. They can't be sued, and they're rarely disbarred. McGowan's mistakes and misdeeds raise the question, are there any consequences for a prosecutor's indefensible actions? questions that need answers i don't really know we'll find out uh so that was in what state was that in i'm losing track sorry we're blazing through this stuff here that was in kansas so over in michigan in macomb county now this story i don't know if any of you have followed this but it was this was one of those ones where i'm just like i i rub my temple at the idiocy of what has taken place uh jonathan Vanderhagen has been acquitted that's the good news so don't let it be said i don't report good news uh, the bad news was that he was ever prosecuted in the first place because it was fucking stupid. This is one of those hashtag team woodchipper type things. If you're not familiar with that particular hashtag, I'm not going to fill you in now. Just Google it. But it's the same basic type of thing. From the story, it says, quote, according to Jonathan Vanderhagen's lawyer, it took a jury all of 26 minutes and eight seconds to decide that he was not guilty of using his Facebook account to threaten a county judge. In 2017, Vanderhagen petitioned the court for sole custody over his two-year-old son, Killian. Vanderhagen believed that Killian's mother was an unfit guardian. Macomb County Circuit Court Judge Rachel Rancilio, the presiding judge, denied the request, and Killian was permitted to continue living with his mother. Killian passed away that September while he was in his mother's care. Authorities concluded that a pre-existing medical condition contributed to Killian's death. Vanderhagen, however, blamed Rancilio's custody ruling for contributing to his son's death, which he believes would not have happened had Killian been in his care. He used his Facebook page to say as much. For two years, he posted about Killian's mother, the court system, and Rancilio, at times using Rancilio's own public Facebook posts and Pinterest pins to criticize her ruling. Rancilio was made aware of the posts, and an investigation was opened against Vanderhagen. Subquote, at no point does Vanderhagen threaten harm or violence towards Rancilio. Sergeant Jason Coughlin of the Macomb County Sheriff's Office, the investigating officer, concluded in his case report. Nevertheless, Vanderhagen was charged with the malicious use of telecommunication services, a misdemeanor in July. Malicious use means that Vanderhagen was accused of using the telecommunication service with the intention of terrorizing, intimidating, threatening, or harassing Rancilio. Now, there's other pieces to this. For example, they ended up increasing the guy's bond. So after he was initially arrested, he was able to be released. They then had a bond hearing where the judge jacked his bond up to a half million dollars. And part of the basis for them doing so was a Facebook picture that they claim violated the guy's bond conditions. But if you look at the timestamps, the picture was posted three days before he ever got those bond conditions in the first place. But nonetheless... They decided, the judge decided that was fine, raised the bond to half a million dollars. The guy was in jail for two months until trial. And the story continues, quote, a jury acquitted Vanderhagen on Thursday of the charge. It's fucking outrageous that this guy was ever even charged in the first place. And it's a good result. So I'm glad he got acquitted. It's ludicrous that he had to spend two months in jail to get there. I was in Michigan, out of Mississippi in South Haven. You know, we've talked about this particular case a few times now, and it just gets more and more ludicrous. Uh, Ishmael Lopez, he was an undocumented immigrant living in South Haven for 16 years, minding his own business 
police showed up to his house by mistake intending to arrest someone else, and they shot him dead. That guy. You might recall that we talked about his execution back in episode 19, two years ago. Uh, talked about the fact that the officers were not going to be charged. That was in episode 77. Well, the family filed a wrongful death suit because, I mean, fuck, they came in and murdered this guy. And the city now is making the argument that because he was an undocumented immigrant, he has absolutely no constitutional rights at all whatsoever, even though the Supreme Court has repeatedly said otherwise. From that story, it says, quote, The attorneys for Ishmael Lopez's family are calling out the city of South Haven's defense in the case. Lopez was shot and killed by South Haven police officers at his home in 2017. His family has since filed a federal lawsuit against the city and the police department. Officers were serving a warrant for someone else and went to the wrong house on the day Lopez was killed. A document filed by the city of South Haven Tuesday questions Lopez's constitutional rights as an undocumented immigrant. It reads in part, Ishmael Lopez had no 4th or 14th Amendment civil rights as alleged in the complaint. There is no jurisdiction based on the absence of any legally recognized relationship of Ishmael Lopez with the United States at the time of his death. In the alternative, there is no standing by either plaintiff due to the illegal alien status of Lopez at the time of his death in tandem with his insufficient connections with the United States of the type, dignity, and caliber required for standing. Lopez's family attorneys, Murray Wells and Aaron Neglia, responded to the filing, calling the policy ludicrous. And it goes on from there, but no, these attorneys are correct, because if you go and read the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, it says in pertinent part, quote, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. doesn't say no to citizen. It says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property. Then in the 14th Amendment, which is what we use to apply the Bill of Rights to the states, it says, quote, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Notice, twice, they use the word person, not citizen. There is no citizenship requirement to have rights, because guess what? Rights are given to you by the Almighty. You are born with them. The Bill of Rights, the amendments to the Constitution, they protect them by restricting government access, but you have those rights by virtue of being a person on God's earth. That's just how it works. So hopefully this will end up being laughed out of court, and this defense at least, and the Lopez family can at least get some uh, compensation for the fact this guy was summarily executed without due process. Uh, up in New Jersey, in Bordenton Township, Frank Nucera is back in the news. Uh, this is the guy we talked about in episode 36, who was federally indicted because he took a black teen he was arresting and decided to slam the teen's head into a door and then lied about it to investigators. So we covered the lying in episode 46, the indictment was in episode 36, and then as part of both of those, it was also revealed that he had been recorded by his subordinates making you know, comments about black folks, comparing them to ISIS. He would use dogs to monitor uh, high school sporting events and would have the dogs terrorize the black patrons. Dude is just all around bad news. Well, as part of this trial for the assault on the black guy, there's transcripts coming out of the shit that he was saying to people, including, among other things, the notion that Donald Trump is the last hope for the white folks. From the story, it says, quote, the former New Jersey police chief caught on recordings making hateful remarks against African-Americans once shared his thoughts about the 2016 election while discussing the arrest of a black suspect. Subquote, I'm telling you, you know what? Donald Trump is the last hope for white people because Hillary will give it to all the minorities to get a vote former Bordentown Township Chief Frank Nucera said, according to a transcript displayed at trial. So, quote, that's the truth, I'm telling you. Nucera's federal trial on charges of hate crime assault and lying to the FBI entered its third day Wednesday, with more testimony from the police canine sergeant who made dozens of recordings of his former chief. Sergeant Nathan Rohr is federal prosecutor's star witness in their case against Nucera, who resigned as Bordentown Township Chief in February 2017 when he learned the FBI was investigating him. Other recordings captured Nucera comparing black people to ISIS and using racial slurs. I just got to say, if your last hope is Donald Trump, you're in some bad fucking shape. Let me just go ahead and put that out there. Uh, so that's out of New Jersey. Last two stories are both in North Carolina. Uh, we'll start in Apex. Taxpayers here, and Apex is in Wake County, which is one of the counties I practice in. 
uh, enormous jury verdict came back where a jury has ordered the uh, Wake County Sheriff's Office and taxpayers to pay $8.3 million. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, An Apex man has won an $8.3 million verdict against one current and two former Wake County deputies who violated his civil rights during an arrest six years ago. Michael Morgan sued deputies Ricky Spivey, Casey Miller, and Joshua Legan after he was beaten and shot while driving on his own property on July 5th, 2013. The deputies maintained that Morgan dragged Spivey along the side of his pickup after a traffic stop, forcing Miller to shoot Morgan twice. But Morgan alleged that he and another man were unloading limbs and brush they had cleared from nearby property in an empty field Morgan owns along Wimberley Road near Apex when Spivey pulled up and cited Morgan for reckless driving and having a revoked license and an expired registration. Which I'm going to note, if you're on your own property, you're not operating on a public roadway, you're not subject to that particular law. But we'll leave all that alone. During the stop, Morgan said Legan searched his truck without consent. After being told he was free to go, an irritated Morgan drove to another part of his property and started doing fishtails and donuts with his truck in the field, which again, it's not reckless driving if you're on your own fucking property. He said Spivey then pulled up next to him, went over to the truck, hit him twice in the head with a baton through the driver's side window. Spivey then tried to pull Morgan out of the truck through the window, which caused his foot to come off the brake and the truck to lurch forward. Miller and Legan ran over to the truck during the confrontation, with Miller drawing his gun and Legan pulling out a taser. When the truck lurched forward, Miller fired two shots, hitting Morgan in the left leg and in the right hand. And if you just think for a minute the physics of how that works, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, you guys clearly pulled out of the window to some extent for you to get his left leg and his right hand. But then at the same time, like, what the fuck are you shooting at? Like, what is that going to accomplish? You shoot the guy in the hand so he can't steer. You shoot him in the leg so he can't stop the truck. I don't fucking know. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, story continues, quote, Morgan was charged with felony assault with a deadly weapon on a law enforcement officer, assault inflicting serious injury on a law enforcement officer, assault on a law enforcement officer, kidnapping a law enforcement officer, and a resisting arrest in the case. He spent four months in jail before he could post bond. He was later acquitted of all charges at trial after questions arose as to whether the deputies lied by claiming Morgan tried to speed away with Spivey hanging on the truck. So there's more to the story. We'll give you a link to the show notes. It's just the whole thing is just so fucking stupid. And the end result is that this guy's been shot twice and taxpayers are going to be on the hook for $8.3 million. You know, it's coming out of insurance, but your insurance premiums are based on the payouts. So we're paying one way or the other uh, because police are improperly trained and decided to ticket a guy on his own property, minding his own business because they were pissed off at him for some reason. Uh, so that's an apex down in Fayetteville in Cumberland County. You have a sex crimes detective committing sex crimes. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a detective with the Fayetteville Police Department was fired earlier this year after he sent messages to at least one sexual assault victim whose case he investigated, police said Thursday. I'm just going to pause. It's fucking disgusting. You know, you being a police officer, you're investigating a case and you start hitting on someone. It, 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 I really don't have words. I mean, it's like me as a criminal defense attorney representing somebody and then I'm macking on them the whole time. It's just fucking gross. It's just a complete and total abuse of power. The story continues, quote, the department terminated Paul G. Matrafalo III. Now, let me pause again. I shouldn't make jokes about anyone's name, given that my last name is Doucette and the shit that I get on Twitter every day, but Paul G. Matrafalo III just kind of sounds like a Bond villain, you know? Uh, anyhow, he was terminated in a letter dated May 7th of 2019. That's just now being made public. Story continues, quote, citing instances in which Matrafalo allegedly sent inappropriate messages, including some sent by Instagram to a woman whose rape case he had worked. And I'm going to pause again. Sorry to keep pausing here. This guy did this multiple times. Like he's got multiple, I don't mean multiple times as in multiple messages to one person. He also did that, but he did this to multiple different women. Story continues, quote, the letter was initially released through a public records request to the Fayetteville Observer, which published a story early Thursday about the firing. 
the department received a complaint in March alleging that Matrafalo had subquote contacted a sexual assault victim via Instagram and began a conversation with her, which she felt was inappropriate. Documents show. Subquote, you were the detective that investigated this victim's sexual assault case in September of 2016. Although detectives sometimes follow up with victims, you had not spoken with this victim since shortly after her trial, and she had never provided you with her social media contact information. Now think about that for a minute. That means this officer kept her name and went searching for her on Instagram to reach out to her. Uh, story continues, quote, the Fayetteville Observer reported that the messages contained references to lingerie, as well as a tongue emoji and a wink emoji. The victim called the messages, subquote, shocking and inappropriate. Matrafalo, who started at the police department in 2009, had also been reprimanded in May 2018 for sending inappropriate and offensive comments to forensic technicians. Police said he also shared, subquote, video of a case to someone not working on the case. So once again, You've got an officer with multiple red flags, multiple priors, who is still a police officer and ends up getting into even more trouble. Uh, so that's all we have for this episode. That was 15 pages. I figure that's uh, that's enough for our first foray back into criminal justice fuckery since the summer. We will hopefully be back next week. If you have any comments, please make sure to share them with us. Again, the Twitter account is at Fiskamall. It's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Or leave us a comment on the website, Fiskamall.com. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, oh, I forgot to mention this. Let me back up a little bit. So while I was suspended the first time, Mike, the sound guy actually used Twitter. Like he hates using Twitter. He talks about how Twitter is a hell site. He hates posting announcements on the few times where I can't tweet. And when I initially got suspended, I didn't want to get in trouble for trying to evade the suspension. So rather than log in on my phone using the Fiskamall account, I had him do it. He we emailed back and forth. He would find tweets. He'd compile them in an email, and I would email a response back. So if you talk to Mike, give him some applause. He spent a whole 48 hours uh, – well, not all 48 hours. I mean it's really only like an hour or two at a time in chunks. Uh, but he was actually on Twitter on my behalf, you know, carrying on the good fight, dealing with the thread knot and all that other shit. Uh, so kudos to him. And I'm, I'm saying this because he can see me in studio right now. I'm giving him a double thumbs up. Uh, the second time he refused, he told me he was not doing that shit again. So I just took the risk of getting in trouble for evading the ban and used the account on my phone. Um, but as always on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, please spread the word, make sure to tell your friends we're back and we're amazing. And we're going to try and make sure we actually stay back this time. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next Monday. Take care.